We'll start again with introducing one of the poems. And uh, today it's going to be Badra Bikuni. And I start with the translation by Charles Halisey. And I couldn't find much about her uh, background history. She belonged to the Sakyan clan, so the same clan the Buddha is coming from. And she also was a concubine in the Buddha Dubi's court. And the Buddha appeared to her also in a radiant vision and spoke a, a certain verse to her upon which she fully realized awakening. And her poem recites that verse which she received from the Buddha in a vision. Badra. Addressing herself, repeating what was spoken by the Buddha to her. The name you are called by means auspicious, Badra. You became a nun out of faith. Now be someone who delights in auspicious things. Become morally skillful for the sake of that unsurpassed safety from all that holds you back. So that's the original. And then I have also the uh, reimagination by Medi Weingast. <coughs> Badra, lucky. You always considered yourself lucky because things seemed to work out the way you wanted. Now, luck has a different meaning. Lucky to be walking a path that finds peace in the arising and passing away of each present moment, regardless of how things work out or don't. Regardless of how things work out or don't. Yeah, and I think that's really a very uh, good way of uh, you know, summarizing the heart of Buddhism. What I would say, you know, finding peace in the midst of arising and passing away, regardless of how things work out or don't. And I think, you know, when I, for the first time, um, had an, an inkling, you know, that there was something I could really benefit from, that was exactly what I intuitively understood when seeing, I remember I was, I was in the train in Burma in... Uh, 87 in, the, in May when it's extremely hot and very, very unpleasant. No air conditioning, nothing in the train. And everyone was going pretty crazy. And then at one point, two monks entered the same carriage where I was. And they sat you know, opposite me for about eight hours or so. so. And I saw them sitting there and the way how they dealt with uh, all of the hardships of that trip left a deep impression on me. They were just sitting there and they had fans and they were just like very calmly, just now look over and next hour and they were just like that the whole eight hours. And I was deeply impressed. And I was sure, you know, they couldn't just kind of pretend because it was just too long, you know. You couldn't just pretend that you were cool. So there were really something about them 
which I felt like I want to be like this. You know, and then I forgot it again and went about my life. And, and then about a year later, I met my first teacher in Thailand, in the south of Thailand, and he had that same presence, you know, and then I remembered. And, and then there was a meditation retreat and in English, so suddenly, you know, I had access to, to that secret, what they had in plain sight, so to say. And then I just stayed there and, uh, and then I became a nun a few years later. And so that was a very um, important moment then, you know, and that was so powerfully uh, speaking to me without words. And I think that's what is a very a very mysterious way, really, how we can connect with the Dhamma, but it's very, very valid and... Uh, that's also, you know, why we want to use these um, poems, which are not kind of a literal word-for-word explanation of the teaching, but they are speaking between the lines. They speak in a very different way, a way, you know, how only art can reach the hearts of the people because it's a different way of communicating and... Uh, you know, I very much loved that uh, story about Michelangelo. It said, you know, that he said when he sees a block of stone, he, he frees that uh, sculpture which is waiting in the block of stone. He can see it. And I have a good friend of mine. She's also a nun in the Tibetan tradition. She's also a sculpture. And she said she has that same, uh, you know, that same relationship. She sees the the stone or whatever the material is, and she can see the sculpture waiting inside that stone. And, you know, that's oh, something we can't really explain how that works, but it, it does. It does exist, you know. And uh, I feel that the medium of poetry has, has a similar power, you know. It can reach our hearts in a way uh, which, you know, a systematic uh, laying out of the teaching can't really get there. And it's different for different people, but I think it's really important to have a respect for this complementarity of both ends. You know, that's really uh, something which we as a, as a culture really need to more deeper understand that it's this uh, dualism, you know, which we are so deeply conditioned into, which is really not capable of uh, transmitting how the universe works or how truth really can be reached. It's, it's, it's a different approach where we need to step out from the black and white, the, the yes and the no, into a, into a different space and a different way of uh, becoming intimate with our experience, which is quite often very messy and can't be really put in the categories. And that can give us a, like a feeling of uh, you know, standing on very, very shaky ground, and that's what it is, because we don't stand on any ground, really. And, and we need to get used to it. 
And, uh, you know, this morning I was uh, thinking, what should I teach about, you know, in connection with that poem by Badra. And uh, I looked into a few things, and then I came uh, to a book of my first teacher, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, which, and there's a chapter about the heart of Buddhism, what actually is the heart of Buddhism, yeah, which enables us to, you know, to be with this groundless ground without kind of, uh, you know, getting lost into fantasies in order to find something to stand on, to find something to get our teeth into, to be able to tolerate this groundless ground and uh, start to even enjoy it, you know, because it also holds a lot of freedom, because it's very malleable, it's very changeable. We are never really stuck. We are only thinking we are stuck. But in reality, there is no way that that could ever really happen. So... There's this example, you know, of uh, trees in the fall or in the autumn. A healthy, deciduous tree lets all of the leaves fall to the ground in preparation, you know, for hard times. And, and only dead, deciduous trees keep their leaves on. You know, trees which are not really anymore alive and in touch with what's happening. And I think that's a very good teaching, you know, for us, that, you know, letting go is a way of conserving energy, letting go that which is uh, not really essential. And the, you know, there's a, a word for that. It's called abscission, and it comes from the Latin word sindere, which means literally to cut. You know, and our word for scissors comes from that same root. So to just to let go of that which isn't really serving the path, that which is, you know, kind of distracting us and keeping us on the surface because we are so busy taking care of so many things that we never have enough energy to really go into the depths. And the true Dhamma, you know, can only be found underneath the surface by paying attention to certain features of our experience which usually, you know, are hidden from our awareness because we are so busily um, taking care of so many details. And, uh, and this conserving of energy is is something in which the Buddha's teaching is really uh, helping us to make decisions in what is wholesome, what is leading towards greater greater um, being in touch with the way things really are, you know, not going against nature. And you know, our whole culture, our whole humanity on this planet has gone so far out of uh, being in sync with nature that we are now you know, on the brink of extinction, really. And not only us, you know, but we are taking many other species with us. And I think it's, it's a huge teaching you know, which is around us every moment. 
But in order to be able to open to that truth, we, we do need support because it's a hard truth, you know, and it's not like our personal thoughts or anything. It's just like how far, you know, greed, hatred and delusion, how far that can go. It's really, uh, yeah, it can really wipe out the whole species, really. It's not a small thing. And, you know, at the same time also what I spoke about, that wonder of belonging, you know, that each of us has the totality of the whole universe at our base. We are, we are, the, are the ground of our existence, you know, has the whole universe as its base through, you know, consisting those bodies consist of the four elements, for example. And the whole universe has to collaborate for producing all of what's needed, you know, to have these forms. And I think, you know, that gives me a great sense of hope also because I have that, uh, through that form of meditation, I have have that clear experience of that I'm part of something much bigger than myself and that I can, you know, let go of all of the additional extra luggage which holds me back from really more and more intimately communicate in that way with the universe through simply having a body, you know, the bio-intelligence of these elements, which I can kind of sense it as my whole being more and more so that I can feel more... as part of something much bigger than myself. And, and I call that the Dhamma, really. And, uh, you know, in the meditation, for example, you know, when the mind is really still and not hankering after anything and we experience that subtle joy or a sense of contentment, I feel, you know, that's when we are in true, truly in touch. Not, not wanting to be somewhere else, you know, not thinking about the future, or worrying about the past, but really being fully here. And then there's this subtle joy or contentment there, you know, which we have completely forgotten that that exists really because of the culture which we have in our delusion, you know, created, always telling us we need to buy something else in order to be safe, in order to be content. So to let go of all of those filters which we have added or which have been added, you know, through our upbringing and with no bad intention, but just a lot of delusion, a lot of delusion. And uh, the Venerable Dignatan says, we are here to awaken from the illusion of our separateness. You know, that's one way, you know, how we can summarize what this path is all about. And uh, my first teacher, Arjun Buddhadasa, he said, you know, the heart of Buddhism is the sentence, Sabe Dhamma Nalam Abhinivesaya, which means nothing whatsoever should be clung to. And this passage was spoken by the Buddha. We have it in the Machama Nikaya and in the Samyutta Nikaya when the Buddha was once asked by somebody if he could summarize his teaching. And 
into one sentence and he said yes he can and that was the sentence he said nothing whatsoever should be clung to no forms no sounds no odors no flavors no tangible objects no mental objects should be clung to they can be certainly enjoyed and eaten and so on and so forth but not with clinging and if there is clinging to be aware of it and yesterday i spoke about these four meditation themes you know which is the last tetrad of the anapanasati 16 steps which you know is uh, paying attention to impermanence leads to washing away of craving dispassion and then if the mind is dispassionate it is able you know to pay attention to the whole spectrum of experiences can also see endings not only being constantly glued on beginnings fresh new young but can see the whole spectrum and then if the mind can really take in the whole spectrum also the ceasing the cessation the dying the falling away the mind responds with letting go relinquishing control because it understands on a very deep level this can only lead to a lot of suffering if there is a attempt to control this process so these these uh, four themes are very very uh, essential for the practice and they can be combined you know with any meditation object really and it leads to what in the pali language is called nibida and we can translate that as disenchantment you know like waking up from a dream so disenchantment is often like a It's considered a negative thing. Oh, I'd like to be enchanted, but actually, why? <laughs> I I rather know the truth, really. And the word nibida, literally, if we uh, look at the root of this word, it means actually not finding nibida, not finding. You know, looking, looking, and looking, and the deeper we go, we always arrive at emptiness. For example, the body, you know, if we look at it, we see oh, it consists of many, 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 many parts. Or it it comes from the elements. It's like a riding animal which is borrowed from nature. So wherever we look, we don't find any unchanging anything we can control or can call me or myself. And that's that nibida, not finding. and the not finding is uh, is good news really because it we always again and again we fall into this emptiness the groundless ground and so we we are falling and falling and falling and we never knock anywhere because it's all empty but we need to get used to that groundless ground which you know in the beginning is is something we we totally try to uh, scramble to avoid because it's if you're not used to it 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 brings up fear or it brings up insecurity uncertainty all of that 
But then if we, if we come back to it again and again, it's like learning an instrument, learning any skill. In the beginning, it's like a chore. It's like hard. We don't want to do it. It's unpleasant. And then maybe like 10, 15, 20 years later, we, we start to enjoy it because we can become skilled at it. And all of the resistances, they have been, you know, washed away through the application, through coming back to it again and again, washing it out, the resistance, and all of the, uh, the sharp edges, everything becomes smoothed. And uh, there's more and more ease with the way things truly are. And the result of it is that the mind no longer needs to cling so much. It's not, there's not so much fear anymore because there is more of a realization of non-separation and a sense of belonging in a different way than what we thought. So I find that very inspiring, that uh, not finding. And also it reminds me there's a, a comic strip with His Holiness the Dalai Lama receiving a big parcel for his birthday. And then he looks inside and says, oh, emptiness. That's what I always wanted. So this, uh, you know, and in a way, if, if you want to summarize the practice, in the way what we have been teaching the, over the last few days, it's, you know, overcoming or noticing when the hindrances are present and then using that warped energy of the hindrances with mindfulness and the other seven factors of awakening, transforming the hindrances into the seven factors inside of what we call you know, the Noble Eightfold Path. But just simply you know, becoming aware, how do I relate to my experience? You know, to, how do I relate to listening? How do I relate to sitting on the cushion right now? How do I relate when I go for the meal? Because we can't always choose our experience or Rarely, actually, we can choose our experience, but what we can choose is how we relate to it. And that's really the core question of the teaching. How do I relate to my experience? You know, where am I right now? And where do I want to go with this? And then what fits in? And that's also you know, why it's really important that we always remember at least once a day, you know, what's the purpose, what's the motivation for my practice, what is my intention, my aspiration. Because we need to know why do I do this actually? Where do I want to go with this? Because if we don't know where we are going, we, we just, uh, you know, amble around and around and... Uh, we have something to do, but it's, it's, it's not a good uh, application of energy. We need to know where we are going. For, for example, you know, if I want to recall, I can always recall the time you know, when I was in that train and when I saw these two monks and how impressed I was with their comportment, I say. 
in, in and then when I saw my first teacher that he had that quality even more and how attractive that was for me. And I can any moment I can recall that. And then I know, I know exactly, you know, what I what's my guiding star here. I I'm, often I can't really, you know, live it yet, but I know that's what that's what I'm going towards. So where I am, where do I want to go, and, and what fits in, what's the appropriate response. And then, you know, let the pressure of the habits just be what it is. Let that pressure be there. And, you know, hold that with kindness and with awareness. And knowing, you know, that's the raw material we have got, it just needs to be transformed. We can't afford, you know, to suppress it or to kind of get rid of it by going crazy. We, we just need to contain this pressure with, with a lot of kindness and interest because that's the only way how it can be liberated from the unskillful um, conditioning. And that's the way, you know, to freedom. That's the way to uh, letting go. And that's why, you know, we do need support for it because it can get pretty intense at times. But, you know, once it's done, it's done. And then one thinks back, you know, oh God, it wasn't that difficult. But when one is in the middle of it, it, it sometimes feels like, I can't do this. And that's just like another thought. So, you know, extracting gold out of the raw material of our any experience which happens through this cultivation of the seven factors of awakening. And the most important ones are sati, mindfulness, joy, or contentment, pity, and the last one, equanimity, upeka. They are the most important ones of those seven. And uh, for the ending, I'd like to share this uh, poem on the seven factors one more time. That's the Reimagination again by Mary Weingast. And I've shared the original already with you, and you can also find it outside. Chanta, conqueror. I was forever getting lost until one day the Buddha told me, to walk this path, you will need seven friends. Mindfulness, sati, curiosity, dhamma-vichaya, courage, virya, Joy, pity, calm, pasadi, stillness, samadhi, and perspective, upeka. For many years, these friends and I have traveled together, sometimes wandering in circles, sometimes taking the long way around. There were days when I thought I couldn't go on. There were days when I thought I was finally beaten. It's scary to give all of yourself to just one thing, 
what if you don't make it? Oh my heart, you don't have to go it alone. Train yourself to train just a little more gently. Yeah, and that seems to be really the, the crux is to do the training but with gentleness. Just like also, you know, the elephant uh, tamer we were speaking about, I think it was the first day, to reach out a gentle hand to our mind, to our heart. And that's, you know, that's the art of practice, which like any art, like any skill, takes time to learn. We make mistakes and then we adjust and keep, keep moving on this path which you know has been tried and tested by many many before us and we have no doubt it does work and with that I'd like to um, leave it for this morning and we can sit for about 30 minutes now thank you
<coughs> so now it's time again for movement meditation or Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.